when I wake up in the morning, if I open my eyes, there's win number one. I jump out of bed, I make my bed, there's two wins in 15 seconds. It's going to be an <laughs> awesome day. Right there, boom, I'm already ready to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And then I have this personal goal to put a smile on one person's face for like, whether that's virtually or in person every single day, I want to talk to somebody and I want to lift somebody up. That was from my conversation, exploring the walk of life with founder and host of the podcast, the Eric Allen show and top-rated MMA, Eric Allen. Eric had a very painful and challenging childhood following his parents' divorce, and as a young adult found himself without direction or support. Once Eric gave his life to Christ, his life completely turned around. He met the woman who would later become his wife, and started on a new and beautiful path. Now almost two decades later, Eric is married to that same woman, and together, they are breaking the cycles handed down to them of addictions, depression, abuse, and lies. Eric strives to lift up others, and gives back to community and veterans through great organizations like Higher Heroes USA. I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Eric, and I'm excited to share it. As always, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music on today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show podcast. Eric Allen, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing amazing. Thank you so much for having me on, man. It's truly an honor, bro. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm I'm humbled to to have you on. Um, so Eric, you you're the, the you're, you have a website, EricAllenMedia.com. You've got a couple of podcasts, the Eric Allen Show and Top Rated MMA. And I want to talk about those, but honestly, if I'm not mistaken, I think I've discovered you through maybe Podit Facebook group. I think is how we connected. Yeah, um, I think so. yeah. But your story is just just very, very compelling. And I'll just give a, a, a quick highlight here that this is from your, your own site, yeah. um, but just to give context for the listener. And then I kind of want to talk to you about that. But I mean, raised in a broken home, battled addictions, jailed at 18, bankrupt at 21, and then turned that around to be sober for almost two decades now, married, beautiful kids, and then podcaster, speaker, and entrepreneur, helping people all around the, the, the world. And you support veterans a lot through through your podcast and also through organizations like Higher Heroes. Yes, sir. Um, again, I don't mean to tell you your own life story. That was really for the benefit <laughs> of the listener. That was awesome. Um, just to provide some context, but I, I just, I think it's so uh, awesome to hear stories like yours. So I, I just kind of want you to, even though I just gave the highlights, I want I want to kind of go back to the the beginning. So yeah, what was your what was your childhood like? You know, where were I you raised? Up, yeah, yeah, I was raised out in Tri Cities, Washington, and at the time it was a small town. It's grown now in Kinnick, Washington, to be specific. And you know, I grew up in what I thought was a typical household. We went to Sunday school. I played little league. My dad would take my best friend Dave and literally throw us in dumpsters behind, you know, big stores and say, go find treasure. That was our typical Saturday morning, like outing, right? You know, right. And my parents got divorced when I was 11 years old. I'd never even heard of the concept of divorce or even, you know, even thought about that at that time. Hmm. And my mom got together with a, a guy pretty quickly afterwards who was very physically abusive immediately. Hmm. He was an alcoholic and he would beat her up. And I remember like times they were arguing, I'd be outside looking through the bedroom window into the room and he'd be hitting her with a cordless phone, like craziness. And the cops would come. My mom would never press charges. It was just weird to me that she never pressed charges and then wanted to continue to stay in that. And they did the smart thing. They got pregnant. And so they decided to move to Stevensville, Montana, population 1,200 people. Mm. And they rented this house on five acres, beautiful property, ponds, like right behind the Bitterroot River. 
really, really pretty area. The problem was they, they rented this house at three bedrooms. It was one for them, one for my brother, who was just like a couple months old at the time, and then one for my sister, who's uh, four years younger than me. And they said, Eric, you get to live in the garage. And I literally had half of the garage with a plastic tarp down the middle. And on one half where I stayed, I had my bed and I had a fireplace that would kind of keep me warm through the middle of the night, maybe uh, during the winters when it would get down to the negative degrees in the winter. And so there were some definitely cold nights out there. I mean, 10 layers of blankets trying to stay warm, man. It was crazy at times. But they came home arguing one night when I was 13 years old. I brushed my teeth. And the way the house was set up was behind me was the kitchen to the pantry to the garage where I stayed. So as I'm brushing my teeth, I felt, me personally, that God was saying, man, you got to turn around. There's some crazy stuff going on right now. And so I turn around and I see him in the hallway in between the pantry and the kitchen and just on top of my mom. Boom, boom, boom. Mm. One shot after the other. I'm like, man, I got to get this guy off. And so I snuck up behind him. I grabbed a cast iron pan that was in the cupboard and swung as hard as I could. And I split the back of his head open. Wow. And he did not get knocked out. He turned around and he said, what then? As he did that, I took another swing and split his forehead open. And at that point, I'd hit him so hard that I had actually fallen over. And he did not get knocked out just being so drunk. He stood up over me and he was yelling, bleeding down his face. My mom jumps up, lands like six punches in a row, blood splats on the wall behind him. Cops come, take him to jail, no charges pressed. And it was at that point, I actually got kicked out. I had three months left in my freshman year of high school. So I started uh, living with friends on their floors and stuff like that and finished out my freshman year in there in Montana. And then that led me down a path of destruction for the next 10 years of my life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's obviously a very wild and wild is not even the right word to say. I, I'm just kind of at a loss. Yeah. It, well, so, and that was what I was going to ask you. I mean, you, you kind of answered it through that story, but because again, I just kind of read, you know, you were raised in a broken home, but, but yeah. so it was evident to you immediately that this was not normal, right? Like that this, cool. yeah. Yeah. Huh. I mean, my parents argued, but I never once saw my dad hit my mom ever. And right. never, never got close to that, you know, but you know, like I said, I'd never even heard of divorce before. And then when my mom went for my dad, who was like this, you know, calm kind of stayed to himself kind of guy to this guy, I was like, it was in shock, you know? Right. And was there anyone that you could talk to at all? Like, was there an adult or a friend or a friend's parents or anyone to talk to? Or were you just pretty isolated in that? I was kind of pretty isolated at that time. There was a friend of my mom's boyfriend and my mom that they had known for a while. That She lived there in Montana a, a ways away. She was older. I would say she would kind of she was kind of like the aunt figure, right? But, mm. You know, she was really nice, but she was. I mean, I could talk to her a little bit, but she also had the insight and the ears to be able to talk to my mom's boyfriend at the time, too. I kept some things to myself, but outside of that, I really didn't have anybody to talk to. And and, and I don't know that I really did. I held a lot of that in. I, I was just kind of trying to be the tough guy. You know, I could get through this and, you know, I'm mean, being this freshman kid and just being the troubled kid who was barely making it through school, you know? Yeah, well, and, and that's the reason that I think these stories in this vein are, are so fascinating to hear because when you encounter people, you know, in society, those of us that aren't going through something like that. And so I don't know if I want to use the word normal, but (laughs) where we're just, you know what I mean? We're we're like, everything's pretty just average. Right. And then you, you meet someone that maybe is troubled and that's, that's maybe doesn't interact in a polite way or something. Right. Yeah. And it's easy to be like, that guy's a jerk or or that guy's whatever. And, you know, so I do unfortunately believe that there are some people who are just (laughs) inherently just kind of assholes. Sure. Um, Yeah. But I think that honestly, the vast majority of the time, what what's actually true is that that person is going through something like 
what you've described. I mean, even not identical, right? But they're going through something horrible that then is projecting through them in this these negative behaviors, right? And so I just think it's important for people to to hear these kinds of stories to understand that try it, it can be hard depending on what's happening, but to try and have empathy for people and and really understand where they might become like why would someone act out that way? So. Yeah. If, if you don't mind, yeah. what, what did that next 10 years look like then where you, you moved out and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I went to live with my dad back in Tri-Cities where I grew up and he rented this house for us, for him and I, and mm-hmm. he would put 20 bucks in a cup for those, my lunch money for the week. He'd fill hungry man meals in the freezer, cereal milk yeah. in the house, and then he'd go stay with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So I would see my dad a couple of times while I was in high school. He got me a bus pass so I could take the pub- public transit, you know, to school, but that didn't leave me any adult supervision, no accountability. You know, mm-hmm. I started smoking pot before school. I was smoking pot during lunch. I was smoking pot after school. I was mm-hmm. taking acid, mushrooms, hash, whatever I could get my hands on, even to the point where, you know, it's $5 for a hit of acid. But if I go to the store and buy a Robitussin bottle or bottle of Robitussin DM, it's only two fifty, and it's going to give me that same hallucination factor. And wow. so I would go and do that. And so I was just constantly high. And it caught up to me when I was 18 years old. I had a, a bong on me and I got arrested for having a bong, drug paraphernalia. And now it's legal in the state of Washington. But in 1998, <laughs> it was not. And right. I had to go to jail, man. Black and white chain gang outfit on, bright orange slippers. I weighed like 145 pounds. Scariest day ever to go wow. to this jail. And it was a smaller cell. There's probably 12 guys in there. And luckily, I didn't have a bunk mate uh, in my cell. It was just myself. But I, I don't know that I slept at all that day. And it you know, I was on probation for a year, so I couldn't smoke any pot. You know, they could have tested me at any point. So what that did was that enhanced my drinking. I started drinking really heavily at that point. Mm-hmm. And two weeks after I graduated high school, I woke up to a note on my dad or on my mirror in the bathroom and said, you can't comply with house rules. You have 48 hours to get out. And so at that point, I was like on this basically homeless over between ages of 18 and 21. I moved 21 times. I lived wow. on couches. I lived on second cousins floors in a sunroom for a week in Seattle. Like, I mean, just wherever I could stay for here and there, I was just on the road. And then I had a hundred dollars in my pocket. And I moved to Seattle and decided to try to make a run out of the city, you know, like go get, go to the big city and get out of the, the town I grew up in and, you know, slept on floors for a bit and then moved a lot. And then, you know, still drinking, always wanted to get into the music business. And it took me about a year and a half once I got up there before I actually got a job with Universal Records. I was started as just an intern. I was showing up every day and just stuffing posters. And they're like, man, this guy's here every day. I did that for six months. And they're like, okay, we'll finally pay him. So I got paid as a mailroom coordinator. I was tracking sales. I was setting up meet and greets. And what that did was it kind of gave me this rock star lifestyle without being a rock star. I was mm. going to two to three concerts a week. And I had open tabs at every concert. And the year before I had that job at Universal Records, my buddy was the manager at a amphitheater called the Gorge Amphitheater. Holds 20,000 people, massive concert arena, amazing concerts. So I had this two-year span where I went to about 175 concerts and lived that rock star lifestyle without being a rock star. Lots of backstage time, hanging out. And then one year anniversary of being at Universal, I got laid off right during the Napster days, man. Napster mm. killed the music industry more than people realize, man. And I was, yeah. I was bottom of the pole, man. So I got let go. And that pretty much set me down this path of, you know, depression. So by that time, I was 22 years old. I'd already filed bankruptcy when I was 21. I was $28,000 in debt because I was just living off of credit cards when I was basically homeless. Mm-hmm. And so here I was working at Starbucks. I was depressed. And this girl walked in and she said, hey, we've got this cool college age event at our church. Would you want to go? 
and me being depressed and not having any friends and, you know, having to go home to my ghetto apartment there in Renton, Washington, you know, I was like, yeah, I'll go. So I go down there and all of a sudden I was like, I knew all these guys. It was like, God was planting the seed for me. It was like, man, I haven't seen you in five years. I haven't seen you in 10 years. And about a month later, it was Easter 2004, man. I woke up in my buddy's basement after a night of party and we went, I managed a band and we played a concert the night before. So I wake up Easter morning, about five o'clock, surrounded by probably 15 guys. And in that moment, me personally, I felt God go, man, you're going down this path of destruction that's going to end your life very quickly if you don't start making some changes. And I quit cold turkey, drugs, drinking cigarettes in that moment. And hmm. I called that girl up and I got her voicemail and I said, hey, thanks for inviting me to that church event. Happy Easter. Maybe I'll see you at the store. And a month later, we were dating and now we've been married for almost 17 years. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's super cool. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't think this was going to be the story of how you met your wife. That's super cool. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, that, so that's, that's really awesome. I, I so I, I was, I'm someone who was, I went to a, a Lutheran middle school. My sure. parents otherwise weren't religious though. It was more because it was like small class sizes and I always got in trouble for talking in the public schools and that sort of stuff. Right. So, so I became, I became a Christian at that point in time okay. uh, while I was in that middle school. And then and then I went back to a public high school and, and kind of moved away from, from all of that. And, and sure. I'm from Springfield, Missouri. So I'm in the, what's known as the Bible belt. Come um, on. Yeah. My family's right. all from Joplin. Oh, okay. Well, there you go then. There. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 not only did I move away, but I, I had like this really kind of unreasonable animosity towards religion in general for a, totally. a long time. Yeah. And, and then in the, in the last several years, and I still, you know, I'm, I, I'm not someone who practices any faith actively right now, sure. but I have, I, I just have such a healthy respect now for, for re religion and, and, and certainly Christianity. I think Christianity in, in America and especially in, in this part of America, in the Midwest, if you're a Christian, then it's all, all, all steam ahead. But if you're not, I think there's a lot of people who feel like I used to feel where there's this kind of rejection of it outright. And totally, it, it it dawned on me though that I don't think there's anything more powerful than belief, which sounds kind of corny <laughs> to say. It sounds like something people tell kindergartners. Sure, but I mean, really fundamentally, like, I, do you think there's anything more powerful than? And, and I don't even mean in religion, and we'll go to that in a second. But yeah. just belief as a concept, is there anything more powerful than that? Man, I don't think there is. I I think. Yeah. It, it, and it's not my job to judge anybody political sense or sexual right. preference or whatever. Right. Like, and, and nope. I, and for me personally, like I know that Christians are probably one of the, some of the most judgmental people ever, you know, but for me personally, I'm like, I'm not going there. Like I, I, it's not my job to judge. I just want to love people where they're at. And, yeah. you know, so, but yeah, I agree, man. I think that belief in whatever that is, maybe it's belief in what you're passionate about podcasting, cars, whatever, man, like, if that's your passion, if that's what you believe in, man, that is the strongest thing out there. I think in faith, faith is probably another, and not just faith in religion, but like faith in whatever you're passionate about. Yeah. There's, I, I've told this story a few times on the pod, but it just really resonated with me. There's this NBA player named Patrick Beverly, who's, I don't know, probably like six, four or five. So he's, he's tall, but for the NBA, he's not that yeah. big. Yeah. And he's not, you know, a, a crazy lights out score or something, but he's been in the league 10 years. So he's a legit player. Yeah but he's a scrappy kind of guy. And he was in an interview and they asked him how, how did you, how, what would you tell someone like if they wanted to, to do what you've done? Like, how do they make it to the NBA when they're not LeBron James basically? And he was like, it's going to sound over simple, but it's, it's hard work and faith. Yes. And, and that's it. And I think actually maybe it's the other order. Like I think maybe faith comes first and then 
what seems like hard work from the outside and not that it's not hard still, but like faith enables a person to, to do really hard things that without that faith might not be doable because it's not maybe logical, <laughs> right? Totally. Like logic isn't what carries, carries a person. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Absolutely. So, so I guess if you, if you don't mind, then yeah, can you talk about a little more about what, what it was like to find that religion and kind of ha- what that transition out of a secular lifestyle into the, the, into Christianity was like? Yeah. You know, that's a, such a great question. Cause I grew up in church, so I knew kind of like the concept of God and, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, but I was the kid who would go to Sunday school with pocket full of GI Joes and I'd ask to go to the bathroom and just never come back. I'd go to the bathroom and play with GI Joes. And for some reason they'd never go and find me. Right. So like <laughs> that was, that was like what I grew up in, you know? So, but then, you know, I also, out of high school, I dated a girl who was a Christian. I was not. And I gave my life to Christ at that time, quote unquote, because I wanted to make her happy. It wasn't necessarily me trying to do this, but so I was, I fully understood the concept of God and, and the faith of being around him. And, and so when I gave my life to Christ again, like in my buddy's basement, I think, you know, I had, I had this pastor tell me one time that, you know, God almost has us on, on puppet strings. And when we sin, he cuts the string and he reties it. And we become a little bit closer to him. And I felt like the string that I was on was <laughs> already done. I was in his hands and it was like, okay, there's no more. Yeah. And I, so I, what I did was I called my buddies and I said, Hey dudes, I got to take a step back. Me mentally, I'm, I'm not able to go out and go party right now. I got to take a break mentally. I'm going down the wrong path and I got to get healthy. And those guys are still my friends today. They said, mm. man, get healthy, go do what you got to do. And I took about a six month break where I just didn't go out to the bars. I didn't go out to any concerts. And instead what I did was it's funny because I've been podcasting in 2017, but I was almost starting to interview people back then without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk with people who were living a, a successful business life, a successful life with Christ, a, you know, a strong relationship, people that were had strong marriages. And I would take them out to coffee and I would say, man, here's my story. Like, how do I get to where you're at? What do I do? How do I get around that? And so I just started surrounding myself with people that were living the life that I wanted to. And I started mm-hmm. reading books. I never even read books before, really. Like, I was so hungry to, to realize, like, or, or kind of figure out, like, all right, my past doesn't define my future. How do I make it stronger? And I started reading books. I was reading like a book a week and I did this for like six months. I read so many books. It was awesome. And unfortunately, I'm not on that scale anymore. I wish I was. <laughs> but, you know, like, so I had to kind of get uncomfortable to get into that that zone of growth. Mm-hmm. And and I think so many people, they're scared to get uncomfortable. They don't want to make that change. They feel like that past is, you know, filled with shame and embarrassment. And that was me. I was I was embarrassed. I was didn't want to go out and tell people that I had to go beat up this dude when I was 13. My mom stayed with this guy. You know, like I didn't want to do that. And finally, when I realized that my past doesn't define my future, I can make a change at any second, just like that. Then my life could be a whole lot better. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, I think it's, and obviously this is not (laughs) profound for me to say this. You already have said this yourself, but it's just so awesome to share that story that you did. Like you said, you know, I asked you if you were isolated back then when you were a kid going through yeah. that and, and you were and and obviously with the internet and podcasting and, and all the media that's available i just think it's awesome for that maybe someone else who has i mean not that i want someone to have that circumstance in their life but if they do maybe they can hear that hey someone else faced something similar yeah and they were able to 
emerged from that and it didn't as you said define the rest of their life uh, yeah i agree i mean i'm 41 now i didn't share my story publicly till i was 39 i held that yeah. sucker in for a long time man and and i came across a guy named pete vargas online that was talking about sharing your story and it's got to get uncomfortable and you just need to put it out there mm-hmm. and i was sitting in my office one day i was like man i'm just gonna do it so i recorded myself i took it to my wife i'm like what do you think should i put this out she's like just so you know i love it but there's going to be people that are going to judge you based off that. And I said, all right, we're just going to put it out. That means it's a good thing. And uh, so I put, it, I put it out, man. And it's been life-changing, bro. Yeah, that's awesome. mentioned you know people being scared to, to share these things or, or to, to get uncomfortable in that thing how do you process yeah I, you know for me uh, now what i do is anytime that i'm i'm scared i had first of all i had to kind of push fear behind and there's days where i'm like the things that i fear now is is letting my family down the, mm-hmm. the things that i fear now is not allowing like putting my kids through a life that I don't want them to have, right? Like I, I, I'm here to break the chains of addiction, abuse, rejection. And my kids will have a whole different life than I had. And so I want to break those chains of, of all that and leave a different legacy with them. So, you know, for me, how do I process fear? I spend time in prayer. Um, mm. You know, so when I wake up in the morning, if I open my eyes, there's win number one. I jump out of bed, I make my bed. There's two wins in 15 seconds. It's going to be an <laughs> awesome day right there. Boom, I'm already ready to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And then I have this personal goal to put a smile on one person's face for like, whether that's virtually or in person every single day, I want to talk to somebody and I want to lift somebody up. So if I'm at the store and someone's got a name tag on, I want to call them by their name. That's what they're for. Like, I don't want to just be there and be like the Karen guy who's just trying to like complain all the time. Who knows <laughs> right. what they're doing, right? Like, I want to actually ask them how they're doing, man. What's, what's today going like, you know, and, and call them by their name. And I think, uh, that's really my my goal, and so to process fear for me, it's it's spending time in, in prayer. So I get up at four a.m. six days a week, and I get up to my office, and I have this entire wall that I changed in my office to a vision wall. It's got quotes, it's got pictures of my family, it's got what I want, my goals, everything right there. And then I come into my desk, and I've got worship music playing, and I just spend time in prayer, just being grateful for the things that I have. I don't like to ask for a lot because I love just being thankful man, thank you for this life. Thank you for health. Thank you for, you know, the opportunity to speak and opportunity to work and be able to provide for my family. So my wa- so my wife's not out like having to pay, be at a job, like she can be home and be the mom that she wants to be. And so that's how I process fear, man, in prayer. Yeah, that's really powerful. I think that, I think that fear seems to be the root of maybe, I don't know, maybe all bad things stem yeah. from that in some way or another. Totally. So yeah, it, it's something I've, I work with a life coach myself and it's something I've been coming to, to, to terms with more and more over the last couple of years. So I'm always interested to ask other people. Yeah. How they, how they look at it. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the quotes I have on my wall from John Maxwell, you know, like fear and mistakes, I think, right? So the greatest mistake we make is living in constant fear that we will make one, right? Mm. Like, like if I can, if, and I read that every single day and I'm like, okay, I know that, yep, I, I don't care if I, if I mess up, it's a learning opportunity and I can change and I can flip. And, you know, I'm certainly not a perfect guy. I make a lot of mistakes and, and uh, I just learn from them and, and then adapt and pivot and go to somewhere else, you know, or figure out how to make it happen. Yeah. Well, and something else you touched on there, you know, just the, the gratitude. It's mm. it's also it's interesting how unintuitive things can be sometimes. Like being grateful makes you feel better, right? Yeah. But it's not but it's but it's not about you, but it right. results in, <laughs> totally. in you feeling better. And like it, there's so many things like that that again, maybe aren't it's not a straight line when you look at it initially, but the the outcome is absolutely that. Yeah. I, I guess Another question I had is, we'll go to your podcast. So the Eric Allen oh, sure. show, you've been doing yeah. that since 2017. What What's the Eric Allen show all about? Yeah, so I actually, it started originally as Top Rated May as an apparel company in 2012. Okay. And then what happened was we took off really fast, and then I got bored with it. In 2015, mm. I, I literally put an ad in Craigslist and said, who wants to buy the Top Rated May brand, the logo, all the followers on Twitter, all of that. And one guy called me, offered me like three grand for it. And it was in that call that I decided I wasn't ready to quit. So I kind of spent the next year just kind of like ho-hum in the business, didn't really do much with it. And then in 2017, I launched the Top Rated May podcast. I had no idea what I was doing. I just wanted to talk with fighters and say, why do you want to get punched in the face? Mm. And I had this walk-in closet and I did almost 100 episodes from that walk-in closet. Bad lighting, bad camera. I didn't even know to look into the camera. You know, bad microphone. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask those guys that question. And that turned into now episode 236 drops this weekend for me. And yeah. it we're humbly considered the number one MMA podcast in, in the Northwest. And so what we do is I love talk with up and coming fighters, amateur fighters, early pro fighters. And I love to get their story. One of the question I ask them right off the bat, where did you grow up? What was childhood like? Because I want the listeners to understand that these are just regular people that decided to take some action and go towards their dream. And the reason the Eric Allen show has now started is it actually started as the Bearded Biz Show in 2018. And it's because I came across a guy online named Ed Milet. And if anybody's ever heard of Ed Milet, that guy is an amazing guy. I highly recommend you go check him out. He's got a book called Max Out, and you can get it for free. Just Google Max Out book free, Ed Milet. And I think you pay six bucks for shipping. That book changed my life. And what I did was I decided, based off of watching him, to start the Eric Allen show. And it was really where I talk with entrepreneurs, world changers, and success-minded people. That was my mm. concept of it. And just wanted to talk to amazing people that had stories. I'm fascinated with people's stories. And in 2018, Ed Milet issued a max out or a challenge on Instagram to his 1 million followers said, submit a one minute story to me of what's your passion. What do you drive? Like what drives you to be successful? And I did that. And about two months later, he announced me as the winner as Ed Milet's Max Out Challenge winner. And I got to have a phone call with him one-on-one -on -one via Zoom for 30 minutes. Oh, and wow. it changed my life, man. That guy was unbelievable, like shut everything down, so like genuine and, and down to earth and genuinely wanted to know about me and how he could help me and, and got me connected with a lot of people here locally. And that just took, my, took the show to another level because I had already talked to Sean Whalen, who's the owner of Lions Not Sheep. But then now I got Ed Milet, and then that opened the door to Tim Story and Brad Lee and Bedris Cooling and Jim the Rookie Morris and you know Dan Caldwell, the founder of Tap Out. Like it just continues to just roll down. You know, Dr. Greg Reed and Steve Sims, some of these bigger names out there that I've been able to bless, uh, been blessed to be able to speak with on my show, and it's amazing, man. I love talking with the guys, and so yeah, I have two shows. The Eric Allen Show drops every Friday, and the Top Rated MA Show drops every Saturday. 
Yeah, that's really, really cool. Both of those stories are awesome. So with with the top rated MMA, yeah. are, have you been a lifelong MMA fan? Like, what's your relationship with MMA? Yeah, I always have. My dad had, like, he would get pay-per-views with Mike Tyson as a kid. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we always had boxing. My dad would go rent movies that were non-English, but they were ninja movies. And so we would just watch ninja movies as a kid. I think I was a ninja for Halloween for like 15 years straight. You know, like <laughs> I just like I, I was infatuated with ninjas, man. And then, you know, I remember in first grade, my cousin Ryan and I, he lived in small town Prosser, Washington, and we would walk a mile in first grade, which I would never let my kids do now. But we would walk a mile, in, in, you know, in first grade down to the, the, the store and we'd go rent UFC one and two on VHS and mm. we would watch as a kid. So you know, always that I, I grew up watching wrestling. So my dad took me to see WWF when it was around, like, you know, Hulk Hogan, Rick, you know, ravishing Rick Rude and Macho Man and Ultimate Warrior and British Bulldog, all those guys. So I was grew up around combat sports and entertainment and things like that. So as an adult, when I started Top Rame, it was right around when Tap Out was huge. And I was talking to my wife like, hey, we should start a, a business. Maybe try to get into this MMA thing. She's the one that came up with the name. And then we said, how do we make ourselves different? And that's when we started working with Higher Heroes USA, which was started by Brian Stan, which, well, he was a fighter in the UFC. Mm. And they had started in 2012 as well. So we were this new company. They were this new organization. It was like, hey, can we partner with you guys and just donate some money to you? And they're like, yeah. (laughs) So even to this day, we donate 25% of all the affiliate sales that I make through my website to them. And we've been working with them for almost 10 years now at this point. And, and they're just a great organization. They help veterans and their families transition in the workplace with free job training and job placement once they're done serving. And uh, it's just a really, really great organization to work with. Yeah, that's yeah, that's super cool. So do you participate in MMA and I mean, in, in an amateur capacity even? I do not. I much prefer to be on this side of the cage and I've been in the cage for photo shoots, man. And that's about it. But I, li- I love I love talking with fighters, man, because. MMA fighters, they, you know, people look at them like, oh, they're just barbaric people, but they're like the nicest people I've ever met. And sometimes you wouldn't even know that they are a dude who could kill you probably in one punch. Like they are the absolute nicest people I've ever met and most caring. They, and at least the guys that I've met. And I've met some big name guys and, and some of the regional guys, but I've never once met a fighter that was just like straight up a jerk. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. It goes back to the unintuitive thing I was talking about earlier. It's, you know, I know people that will be intimidated to go to a gym because, there's too many bulky muscular dudes there or something and they don't want to be, they don't want to get made fun of or something. And it's like, dude, anytime I've ever been around someone who's at the top of whatever game they're at, they're never jerks because they don't, they're not worried about anything. You know what I mean? Like nothing, not worried about anything, but they're not, (laughs) they're not threatened by the new person or something. So there's no animosity in that way. Yeah. Um, And not that being a soldier and being an MMA fighter is the same thing, but most and I don't I don't know personally a lot of soldiers, I guess, but most of the like like ex special forces guys, I watch a lot of podcasts that those guys do, like Jocko Willink and Mike yeah. Glover and those types. They're all incredibly grounded, thoughtful, humbled, sensitive right? <laughs> people. Totally. That is not the image that you have of like Navy SEAL, right? Mm-hmm. But but that is who they are. So I mean, do you have like what drew you to working with the military just inspired by the the service and sacrifice or how did you get drawn to that? Yeah, I got one recruiting call when I was 18 and I was mm-hmm. pretty much anti service at the time. I, mm-hmm. I was heavy into drugs, didn't want anything to do with it. I said a lot of stuff to that recruiter guy that I probably shouldn't have. And I never got it. Mm-hmm. And I, I kicked myself every day, man, because I wish I would have joined that brotherhood. And so as I got older and wanted to show my respect to soldiers, you know, if we're out in town and we see somebody in uniform, whether that's police, EMT, firefighter, 
you know, armed service, whatever, you know, my wife and I and our kids even like they'll go, hey, there's a soldier. Let's go say thank you. And we walk up and we say thank you so much for your service. I have such respect for these guys that are literally putting their life on the line for yeah. my freedom. And so I just wanted to be able to give back and be able to just honor soldiers and work with, you know, veteran owned companies. The flags that you see behind me, they were given to me by a sponsor named Combat Flags, which is an amazing one man shop. And he's donated over six figures to an organization called Stop uh, Soldier Suicide. And it's just a great organization. This company, Combat Flags, such a great company to work with. Yeah. Well, I just, I think that honestly, I mean, MMA to some extent gets this, gets pulled. I don't know if politicized is the right word, but sure. people will have an impression of it without really exploring it that much. And I think the same thing is true of, of soldiers and in, in the military that gets politicized and, and gets turned into something that, that I don't think that it, it is at all. Um, and, and the same thing with religion, like we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, totally. I, I think when these things are looked at through kind of monolithic institutional lenses, if you will, <laughs> then yeah. It, it looks it can look like something that, that maybe isn't up and up. But when you actually interact with the individuals in any of these things, it's just not the experience that you get. You know what I mean? Like you said, you talk to soldiers and these guys are are are, are literally putting their lives on the line. And I don't I, I, I say this. I said I was going to say I think people don't fully understand that sometimes. And I say that because I didn't really understand until I really got in and started listening to some of these stories and hearing what some of these people are going through and yeah, it's, it's not like they're making a million dollars a year doing it. You know what I right. mean? Like, totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got idiots in the NBA that are kneeling for the flag <laughs> that make 50 times more than a, a guy out there in the streets that are protecting us, you know? And that, that's why I was so, that's why I was so excited to have you on is just because you're obviously a very authentic person. And I think that, that those topics deserve, people to hear authentic conversations surrounding them, you know, because yeah, like I said, they get kind of swept up. Well, Eric, I know you've got to, you've got to be going here shortly. Obviously, like I said, at the beginning of the show, ericallenmedia.com, your two podcasts, the Eric Allen show and top rated MMA, anywhere else that people should be looking to connect with you or going to, to find you. Yeah, I'm big on Instagram. So I love connecting and networking with people on Instagram. I respond to every comment, every DM, love, love networking with people on that. And, uh, you know, yep, ericalmedia.com. You can check out, you know, the work that I work with brands and I do brand videos and promo videos. I do some voiceover work. I know you had spoke to Jody who does voiceover, which is awesome. But, yeah. you know, like I just started just started getting into voiceover this year and I don't do voices, but I just like read scripts and stuff like that. It's been really fun. So I've been enjoying that a lot lately too, man. And, but yeah, Instagram, ericalmedia.com is the best website. And, you know, it's such an honor to be here, man. This is a great conversation. You're a great host, man. People need to be listening to your show, dude. Well, I really appreciate that. It's it's very generous of you to say. And yeah, I'll I'll make sure and have links and all the show notes for for people to just click directly on that. But Eric, really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Such an honor, man. Thank you.
Driving memories drift in the wind Over signs dying in the grass Mothers, fathers, and lifelong friends Become layers of the mountains past Our castles came crashing down Stone by stone they fell to the ground Mortar eaten by earth again. Their baby letters drifting into Families fled to the open plains Hard and handsome dirt and stone Under the sun a turning gray Fire and iron weaved in the bone Brick by brick they built their home On the hill where ruins lie Generations walk those halls Now the roof crumbles under the sky The staircase came crashing down Step by step they fell to the ground No way to reach the top floor again It's a paper letter drifting into came crashing down One by one they fell to the ground No way to keep the stone walls within Their baby letters drifting into That's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Eric Allen for stopping by. That was a great conversation. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening. I also invite you to check out my other shows, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which is about the MMO Crowfall. You can find either of those shows on any podcast platform. Thanks again for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up.